please stand. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. If you go to your local Christian bookstore, you're going to notice something pretty quick. Our culture is obsessed with the end times. It's hard to find new tomes on justification by faith or baptism or the Lord's Supper. They are out there, of course, but they are few and far between against the greater smattering of books that claim to tell what's coming next. These books always seem to sell like hotcakes. People just love the end times. Even if they're not particularly religious, all you have to do is look at the various media in this world that are based around the end of it all. For some reason, we're just grimly obsessed with it. And Christians in particular, considering the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, and indeed the knowledge that the end is actually better than the current state of things, it's no surprise to see just how popular it is in our circles. Hence, the lucrative market. But all of this is weirdly at odds with these words which we heard from St. Paul this day, that brothers, concerning the times and seasons, you have no need for anything to be written. Paul simply assumes that everything that has needed to be said has thus far been said and said sufficiently. And indeed, as we look in the scriptures, what we find is that Jesus' own teaching about the end times is remarkably simple in comparison to the complex and ever-weaving narratives of modern end times theology. Jesus' whole teaching on the matter might be summed up like this. 
Yes, I will come again. You can take that for certain. And when I come, it will be a few things. It will be obvious. It will be dramatic. And it will be sudden. So sudden, in fact, that many a man will go out into the field that morning expecting it to be a day just like any other when heaven itself will roll up like a garment, the mountains shall melt like wax, the voice of the archangels will sound from heaven, and the trumpet of God will blast such that even the dead raise up in startled alarm. Okay, that's good, Jesus. But what about the meantime? If you tell us that it's coming and you tell us that it's sudden, there is still the question of, well, if we don't know the day or the hour, what are we to do? And the parable that he gives us today describes exactly that. And yet again, it is astonishingly simple. Ten virgins are selected to be part of a bridegroom's procession, a common feature of Jewish weddings, and one that everybody knew came with a little bit of obligation. As anyone who's ever been involved in a wedding knows, it's not something that you just up and do one day. It takes planning. It takes work. It takes time. And to be given a place among the wedding procession was a great honor to be sure, but also one that obliged you to be ready for it. These things tended to just happen when they were ready, and you needed to be ready to grab your lamp, join the procession, and enter into the wedding hall in a timely fashion. But of these ten virgins were selected, we hear that only five of them are really wise about all this. Now, an important aside before I go on, we must understand that when the scriptures talk about wisdom and foolishness, it is not an intellectual matter with which they are concerned. Almost never do you see the words used in scripture related to intelligence or a person's individual faculties. No, wisdom and foolishness is a matter of faithfulness versus unfaithfulness. The wise are faithful to hear the words and the instruction that is given to them and to receive it and act accordingly. The foolish do not care. The foolish care for their own wants, their own desires. They do not receive instruction, they do not receive correction, because in the end they are very assured that they already know what they need to know. So back to the parable. All ten virgins equally knew that they needed to be ready. And indeed, if you look at what they had to do to be ready, it is again not a particularly difficult matter. There is not some arcane set of rules and restrictions before them. It is just have your lamps on you and be ready to light them and join the procession. 
What do they need to this end? They need lamps, which you can be assured they all had. They need wicks, which are not hard to come by. And they need oil, which day by day they would have been around. Every single time one of these virgins went to do their tasks at the market, there was oil right in front of them. And it would have taken the barest amount of effort to simply say, I need a little more than normal. Or indeed, even if matters were so dire for them that they could not afford it, there is surely at least one merchant who cared for the bridegroom enough to make sure that his procession had all the oil that they needed. Again, it wasn't difficult. It wasn't hard. It was just not on their minds, not something that they cared for. And so at last the hour comes as they surely again knew eventually it would. The bridegroom comes and all of them grab their lamps and the five find out, oops, I guess maybe we should have done something about this after all. So they go to the five around them who were wise and say, give us yours. But as the wise rightly point out, all that will do is mean that all 10 of us will be walking in the dark. So go find your oil quick and try to get on board. Which of course does not happen. They delay. The bridegroom takes the five who did what was asked of them and receives them into the feast that is prepared. But for the five who could not be bothered to do what little was asked of them, there is no part. And one cannot help but wonder if those five virgins, as they were locked out of the feast, wondered to themselves, was grabbing a single flask more of oil really so much effort that it was worth this? How many excuses must they have come up with for why they should not acquire that oil? Another trip to the market, another handful of pennies lost that might be spent on something else, Maybe even at one point they had the oil and they said, well, the bridegroom is taking his sweet time and there's always tomorrow and there's bread that needs to be baked today. So why waste it waiting for him when I can use it on myself? And again, all of those cheap conveniences must have seemed very pale against the shame, the dishonor, and the deprivation that came from their foolishness. And so too, I imagine on the last day, there will be many, very many people in the exact same position. For indeed, what does the Lord require that we may enter into his kingdom? The answer is nothing, even less than going out to buy oil. He requires of us nothing, save that we hear his word and that through this word, faith may be created in us. 
Yes, there is a life that comes with that faith. There is works, and there is vocation, and there are all the other things attending to Christian life. But at the end of the day, the Lord asks nothing of us save receive my word and believe. And yet how many people would scorn even that non-effort? And much like the virgins, it isn't as if there is some arcane rule and guidance to how this comes about. It is simple. How do we receive the faith that is necessary to enter into the wedding feast of Christ and his kingdom? It is simply the word of God and his sacraments, his church, the preaching of his holy word by which the Holy Spirit creates faith in those who hear and prepares them to receive Christ with joy and gladness. It is not difficult. It does not require great intelligence, great capacity, great work, great power, great wealth, or anything. But still, so many just don't want it. And again, the same sorts of things come up as came up in the virgins' lives. Why should I give up another hour of my already crammed week to come to church and hear some guy in fancy robes drone on? I could be sleeping. I could be watching, I was going to say the sports game, but really the first hour is just them chatting anyway. It's not all that important at all. But I could be doing any number of things that seem to me greater than this. Why should I spend the effort and the gas mileage to get out to the church to hear these things when I could stay warm and comfortable in my own bed? Why in a world that's already, already filled with looking at papers and running over forms and all these other things, should I carve another few hours out of my week, week to read the Bible? When again, I could be doing something else. How many people have these things but don't avail themselves? How many people drive by this church or any church so often in their daily goings and never even think to drop in? How many people come within a block of their own church on Sunday as they go to some other non-important matter and can't even be bothered to go an additional block to get there and receive the word of God? How many people had faith, were prepared at one point, but let it die, deprived themselves of the things that they needed in favor of trivia, in favor of momentary gains? And on the last day, will not these people look at the shut gates of heaven and think, that effort would have been worth it. That an hour or two of your Sunday given up to, yes, a guy in fancy robes droning, would have been worth it in order to enter into the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom. 
that yes, wrangling the kids in the morning and braving the cold to get into church and to hear the proclamation of the word would have been a worthy effort for the sake of receiving Christ and receiving all of his benefits. Will not all of those people on the last day, as they look at those shut doors, think, how foolish was I? How foolish was I to not even put in the tiniest bit? But there is hope for us. There are a few things that we can take comfort in, knowing that we ourselves are prone to this, knowing that we ourselves struggle to put, devote ourselves to stay awake as Christ has commanded, Yet there are still some things that bring us comfort. First, Christ has not come yet. And I know that that's a strange thing to list as being comfort, because we usually think of Christ not being here yet as a bad thing. And really, it is, in one way, but it is also a reminder to us that the time of grace is still upon us. As St. Peter put it, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but rather he is being patient with you, being patient with all men, desiring all to come to repentance and to salvation. That Christ has not yet returned is, in a mysterious way, a sign of his grace. It is a sign that he is giving his spirit full time to work in this world, full time to call people out of their stupor, to call them to what is truly necessary so that they too might receive him with joy, that they might join in the holy procession of the saints and enter into the Lord's feast with gladness and joy. And while, yes, I admit, I would like these times to shorten, we all do well to pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yet still, while the night of his tarrying is upon us, we can take solace in the knowledge that we still have time. And indeed, this should not be an excuse for us or for anyone to think, well, there is always tomorrow, because again, you know not the day or the hour. But rather, it should give us hope and indeed motivate us to act now. For the second thing which we can take comfort in is the knowledge that those means of grace are still among us. That just as the virgins had plenty and opportunity to go to the market and get their oil, so too God has not hidden the places where his salvation is made manifest. We know where to go. We know what to do. We know what is profitable for our salvation. And we have the assurance that in these things, Christ will bless and sanctify us. So yes, dust off the Bible. Cut out an hour a day. Cut out whatever time you can. Yes, wrangle the kids out of bed in the morning. Yes, brave the cold. Yes, listen to the man in the robe drone on.
All of these things are God's way of preparing us for that day, of ensuring that we do not fall asleep to our destruction, but that even in the greatest sleep, the sleep of death, yet still our lamps are prepared so that when we are called, we can leap forth from our tombs to meet Christ with all joy and gladness. This should give us great hope, the knowledge that we do have time, and we have the means, and that we have God's blessing. But finally, and perhaps the most important of the things I would like us to take away today, we have this hope. God has his people. From before the foundations of the world, God has chosen people to be his own in Christ Jesus. He has chosen you to be his own through the shed blood of his son. And he has prepared everything that is necessary for you to attain to that heavenly feast which he has prepared for you. And he will not let you fall asleep. If need be, he will march down the street to put the flask of oil into your hands. And if need be, he will give you more. Whatever is necessary for your salvation, God has prepared for it, and God will see it done. We need not fear that the night of Christ's return will come upon us and swallow us up as though God were somehow playing gotcha with us, luring us into a false sense of security so that he might snap us up in a moment and say, tough luck. But that as God is delaying now so that his spirit might prepare all men, so too he is delaying so that he might assure that you are prepared for it. And if you're prepared for it today, then great. God bless you, and may he continue that work among you. But if you're not, be assured that you will be. In baptism, Christ prepared you for that day. And Christ said in that moment, come hell or high water, I will make sure that you are in my kingdom. And whatever I must do to make that happen, then I will do it. Indeed, Christians, we have a great hope. We have a great comfort and security in knowing that Christ comes again, in knowing that we will be prepared for that moment, that he will make sure that all of our lamps are filled to the brim, that our hearts are filled with faith and joy and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have the hope and confidence that that day will not come upon us as the thief in the night, but it will come upon us as the joyful cry, the feast is ready, the bridegroom is near. And then we all will indeed enter the supper hall. And we will be with him forever in his light for all of time to come. May that day come speedily among us. May the Spirit prepare us to meet it with all joy and expectation. Amen. 
the name of Jesus, our only hope in this life and the next. Amen.